Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Russia's foreign ministry spokesperson emphasizing Putin's maximalist demands, which amount to a capitulation by Ukraine as a condition of peace talks, as Zelensky heads to the White House to try to salvage an aid package House and Senate Republicans are stalling. Joining us to discuss Putin's spontaneous announcement he is running for another presidential term and the disappearance of Navalny is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, how our shadow war with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. Then we'll look into the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania while the head of Harvard while the head of Harvard's fate is hanging by a thread following a trap set by Congresswoman Stefanik in a hearing who badgered them into answering yes or no to whether calling for genocide of Jews on your campus constitutes harassment when in fact no such calls exist, although many are arguing that what is happening in Gaza is genocide. Joining us is Juan Cole, who is a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's the author of the blog Informed Comment at com, and the author of Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. We'll discuss his article at Democracy for the Arab World Now Dawn, the other Israel-Gaza conflict on campus. Then finally, with Kate Cox, the 20-week pregnant woman in Texas escaping the death sentence imposed by the Texas Attorney General and Supreme Court, who were denying her a life-saving abortion as the clock runs out for her, having gone out of state for an abortion today, we will speak with Francis Kissling, the president of the Center for Health, Ethics and Social Policy a visiting professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, where she teaches reproductive rights and ethics. She serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics and was the president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, stepping down when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is George Beebe, the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russia Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russia Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia could spiral into nuclear catastrophe. Welcome to Background Briefing, George Beebe. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, George. And Russia's foreign ministry spokesman, Maria Zakharova, emphasized uh, just a couple of days ago in an interview that basically emphasized Russia's maximalist position vis-a-vis Ukraine, saying it hasn't changed and they want essentially Ukraine to capitulate to all of the territorial demands before any serious negotiations. And that, of course, is extremely unlikely that Ukraine would ever agree to that. So how can you make a peace deal or come up with some kind of compromise here to stop this agony in the face of Russia's maximalist demands? Well, I think it's correct that that Russia's demands have not changed significantly since the start of this invasion. 
Um, they've made very clear what they want. Um, and uh, they believe that the momentum in this war is on their side. So under, under those circumstances, I think the likelihood that the Russians are going to relax uh, the demands that they've had now for quite some time is slim. Uh, that said, I don't think some sort of territorial compromise, or at least not formalizing some sort of new agreement about where the border is going to be drawn between Ukraine and Russia, uh, is the key to ending this bloodshed. I think the fundamental demand, um, something that the Russians have emphasized over and over again, and something that uh, Ukrainian negotiators have in fact confirmed uh, retrospectively, is uh, Ukraine's geopolitical neutrality. And that's actually an issue that's primarily between the United States and Russia, not between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians, of course, are free to ask to join in uh, the NATO alliance or to ally with the United States uh, individually. But it's really up to the United States to decide whether we're going to accept that or not. Um, if we insist that uh, Ukraine is going to be a military ally of the United States, then Russia will have every incentive to keep this war going until Ukraine simply becomes a dysfunctional wreck, uh, incapable of allying with anybody, including the United States. But if the United States were to signal that uh, we are, are not in fact going to press the case that uh, Ukraine should be an American military ally, then I think the possibilities for some sort of understanding with the Russians to end this fighting go up rather significantly. And in that context, uh, I think the question of what the border is going to look like between Ukraine and Russia does not have to be addressed early on. That's something that I think could be addressed over time. Um, in fact, that's what the Ukrainians proposed uh, a year and a half ago when they were still negotiating with the Russians over a potential end of the war. They had proposed tabling uh, the status of Crimea, for example, for 10 to 15 years. And I, I think that's the kind of uh, contour to a compromise that we need to be thinking about. Don't try to solve territory right now. Uh, focus on geopolitical neutrality that would have to be coupled with some guarantees for Ukrainian security. If we could do that, then I think uh, some sort of uh, uh, compromise into the fighting is conceivable. But what's the difference then, George, between the Ukrainians being an ally of the United States and being a member of NATO? Well, the difference is one, you're, you're in a formal uh, you know, North Atlantic Treaty Organization um, the other is you're in a de facto uh, or, or legal state of military alliance with the United States individually. Uh, in order to join the NATO alliance, Ukraine needs not only U.S. approval, it would need the approval of all NATO members, which uh, is far from a given. Um, there are varying degrees of enthusiasm within the NATO alliance for a potential uh, Ukrainian membership. But the United States, uh, you know, if, if it wanted to, uh, could decide tomorrow that it wants to have a military alliance with Ukraine. Uh, interestingly enough, the United States has had many years of opportunity to uh, essentially declare Ukraine uh, a treaty ally. Uh, we have not done so, um, nor did we commit uh, to send U.S. forces to defend Ukraine after Russia invaded. So um, that question of whether Washington believes it's in the vital interests of the United States to commit itself to go to war if Ukraine is attacked, I think has already been answered in practice. So far, no U.S. president has decided that, that uh, this is a country that the United States ought to go to war itself to defend. So what do you think, though, the Russians would accept in terms of, you know, either NATO or whatever? I mean, if you're going to make a territorial concession, and particularly the Russian claims to control Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson, and other areas that they occupy, at some point or other, you're going to have a, some kind of a 
DMZ, uh, you know, it's World War I trench lines as, as we speak in any case. So you have, you'll have a border, a militarized border, but, you know, with people like former Russian President uh, Medvedev still talking about Ukraine being needed to be denazified and that they're, they're banderite scum is the latest description he gave them. Is that a belief system on the part of Russian leadership or is, just, is that propaganda? Well, it's a little of both. Clearly, the uh, the Russians are trying to to uh, use um, right wing extremists uh, in Ukraine, and there there are some of those. There's no question about that. Um, to, for exaggerated effect, uh, to try to advance uh, their information war objectives uh, in the war, and also to rally Russians around this war effort as well. Um, but part of this is a, a sincere belief on the part of many Russians, not just Putin, that there are uh, extremist uh, right-wing forces in Ukraine um, and that their, uh, their activities do pose a threat to the Russian state and to ethnic Russians that have been living uh, on Ukrainian territory and they want to address that. Now, is that the key war objective that the Russians have here? No, I don't think it is. Is that something that could be handled in the context of, of settlement negotiations? Yes, probably. Um, but uh, I think realistically speaking, the Russians are going to want to see some kind of change of uh, leadership uh, in Kyiv um, as part of uh, the accomplishments in this war. Um, I think they would be more comfortable uh, with uh, a presidency um, in which those forces have less influence than they have had. Uh, now, um, I don't think that's the key to ending the war, though. Uh, again. Right. Uh, but, but isn't that a tall order, George? Because the people of Ukraine are so furious about the destruction and invasion that's been wrought by Russia. So. How could you find a leader in Ukraine that wouldn't really be a, a nationalist? Well, you're you're certainly going to have some kind of nationalist. The the question is uh, how extreme, how ethnically based is that nationalism? Um, right now, uh, Ukrainian polls, to the degree that they reflect reality there accurately indicate that the uh, the head of the Ukrainian military, General Zeluzhny, is growing in popularity relative to Zelensky, who seems to be declining in popularity. Um, what I'm hearing uh, from people on the ground in Ukraine is that uh, Ukrainian citizens, of course, have absolutely no love for Russia or for this invasion, but they also are increasingly suspicious that the, the popular narrative about the war that uh, President Zelensky has been uh, advancing is at variance with reality, that he has been painting too rosy a picture of how well this war is going for Ukraine. Um, and people are trusting Zeluzhny more. Now, what is Zeluzhny's position? It, it is not, you know, that uh, Ukraine ought to be best friends with Russia and make all sorts of concessions. But he is saying, look, we need to be realistic about what we can accomplish and to focus much more on defending Ukraine rather than recapturing Ukrainian territory that is now in Russia's hands, um, which of course Ukraine will not give up a claim to, but uh, we have to recognize it from, from his perspective anyway, that uh, Ukraine is not going to recover that territory anytime soon, either on the battlefield or at the negotiating table. Um, so would the Ukrainian people uh, throw their weight behind a leader that um, has less ambitious but more realistic war aims? I, I don't think we can rule that out under these circumstances. Well, of course, President Zelensky is on his way to the White House which he'll be visiting on Tuesday. So, and he, of course, is trying to, along with Biden, is trying to get the House, the Republicans in the House and Senate to stop their blockage of aid to Ukraine. So if what you just told us, George, is happening in Ukraine itself, 
Do you see him as a weakened figure? I mean, what can Biden pull out of the hat given the impasse with the House and Senate who seem to be perfectly happy to spend or to waste a lot of money on a border wall as opposed to give money to Ukraine? Well, I think the uh, the clout that Zelensky has in Washington is greatly diminished relative to what it was uh, a year ago. A year ago, he came to Washington, addressed a joint session of Congress, uh, was essentially celebrated throughout the city um, and uh, treated, you know, fawningly. Um, when he last came, uh, more recently. Um, he was actually denied an opportunity to address uh, a joint session of Congress, um, was treated with uh, much more indifference uh, than he was uh, back in uh, 2022. And I think the degree of clout that he has with Congress is, is significantly reduced. In other words, if the Biden administration really wants to close some sort of deal with Congress over funding for Ukraine, I doubt that Zelensky is going to help them a lot in that endeavor. This is a case that the Biden administration is going to have to make itself on its own. Uh, and Zelensky is much less of an asset for them than he was. So just in the last couple of minutes, and I wanted to touch on the disappearance of Navalny. What do you make of that? Well, um, at this point, very hard to say what exactly has happened, but uh, I will say this, uh, the, uh, the announcement of President Putin that he is seeking re-election in the, uh, the voting that will take place in March of next year um, is uh, probably not unrelated to what is going on with Navalny. Navalny wants, I think, to the degree that he can, uh, to throw a monkey wrench into Putin's re-election prospects and his ability to do that uh, are fair, is fairly limited. However, uh, the degree to which Putin really faces organized opposition will undermine Putin's standing among Russian elites. Um, they all know he's going to be reelected. That's not in doubt. The question is, how convincing is that support? Uh, is it clear that he has widespread support among the Russian people, uh, does he have the ability to overcome organized opposition uh, in a way that, that looks genuine rather than fraudulent? Um, and you know, in that regard, I think the Russian authorities are uh, paying very close attention to what Navalny and his organization are trying to do. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen what exactly has happened in this case. But uh, Navalny is quite vulnerable under these circumstances. There's no question. Well, he's not in the best of health. And do you think they'd go so far as to kill him? Well, quite possibly. Uh, I wouldn't pull that out at all. Uh, Russian politics is a full contact sport, so to speak. Sure. But just in closing, though, Putin said, made his announcement he's running for another term spontaneously, according to Peskov at the Kremlin. And he did it because of the groundswell of support for the war and wanting uh, him to continue the war, which none of which sounds at all likely to be the case. But clearly he's completely tying himself to the war. So in closing, what do we know about uh, Russian public opinion about this war, I'm, I understand that it, you know, it may only be what 50% of the country supports this war. Well, it's hard to say. Um, you have to take polling data in Russia uh, and, and in Ukraine, for that matter, with a grain of salt. There is, of course, an information war that is going on in parallel to the the physical war uh, in Ukraine. So, um, you, you don't want to trust any of these sources uh, too much. That said, I think uh, Russian opinion polls have shown an increase in support for Putin over time. Um, and in part, that reflects uh, the, uh, the fortunes of, of Russian forces on the battlefield. I think the war uh, in recent months has been going pretty well for Russia. Um, and uh, my guess is that we're likely to get continuing good news from Russia's perspective. Uh, between now and Election Day. 
So um, I don't think Putin uh, is unpopular. I don't think this war is something that a lot of Russians actually oppose. Um, it took them by surprise. I think a lot of Russians didn't think it was necessary at the time, but now that they're in it, and now that they have seen the degree to which the United States and NATO have backed Ukraine, I think a lot of Russians now believe, okay, well, we need to win it at this point. We're in it. Uh, we're fighting not just the Ukrainians, we're also fighting uh, the United States and, and the North Atlantic Alliance. Um, and so uh, we, we need to carry this forward to a successful conclusion. Well, George Beebe, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with George Beebe, who's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He served in government for nearly 25 years, including as Director of Russian Analysis at the CIA and as a White House Advisor on Russian Matters for Vice President Dick Cheney. His latest book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into how the presidents of prestigious universities fell into a trap set by Congresswoman Stefanik in a hearing where she badgered them into answering yes or no to whether calling for genocide of Jews on your campus constitutes harassment when in fact no such calls exist. I have breathed all the sea You're our fan Prophecy, our destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up, it will be on your side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern, Middle Eastern, and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Inform Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he has an article at Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, the other Israel-Gaza conflict on campus. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole. Hi, Ian. So thanks for joining us, Juan. And the presidents of MIT, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania were all on the hot seat before a House committee, and Stefanik, this Trump toady, trapped them all into a question that they should have answered differently or not literally fallen into the trap because she repeatedly asked all of these presidents essentially the same question. Does calling for the genocide of Jews on your campus constitute harassment, yes or no? Well, arguably there is, some people argue that there's genocide going on in Gaza itself, even though that's very debatable. That's real, one way or the other. But the fact <laughs> that there's calling for genocide for Jews on campus, that's not happening, right? So it was a complete setup. And why do they fall for the trap? Yes, I mean, the, they should have uh, simply said, I don't agree with the premises of your question, and then told her what they had to say. Uh, and uh, well, uh, it was amazing to me that university presidents w weren't um, more savvy about dealing with these uh, these issues. As you say, they were trapped. It's it's like asking, you know, someone, have you stopped beating your spouse? Uh, and uh, uh, there, there's there's the only way to get out of it is is to reject the premise. There there haven't been, to my knowledge, any uh, campus demands uh, for genocide against Jews. The issue that's going on, and what this language really refers to, is that. Uh, Palestinian and pro-Palestinian students have demanded rights for Palestinians, or they've demanded freedom for Palestinians. Uh, and the hardline um, uh, nationalists on the Israeli side uh, or their supporters interpret any demand for freedom for Palestinians as a uh, threat to the existence of Israel, which they then 
equate to genocide of Jews. So there's a very complicated ideological set of definitions around these terms. And for instance, uh, uh, the, the chant, uh, you know, from the river to the sea, uh, Palestine will be free, uh, it has been interpreted by some university administrations as uh, anti-Semitic, uh, and, and, and others have said that the chant itself implies the destruction of Israel and therefore genocide against Jews. Uh, and uh, Palestinians and Palestinian intellectuals and, and their supporters have, have said not at all. Uh, why shouldn't the Palestinians be free? Uh, and uh, their freedom shouldn't uh, shouldn't imply any damage to uh, to Jews, um, and certainly not to Jews on American campuses. Uh, so you know, the, it's a trick, and it's a trick of ideology. Uh, the hardliners on the Zionist right want to disallow Palestinian uh, uh, voices and 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 demands for uh, for rights, and and the, the way they do it is to equate those with uh, anti-Semitism and, you know, claims of hurting the feelings of Jewish students and so forth, uh, which, uh, you know, Stefanik took advantage of uh, to, to, uh, uh, to put these presidents in the hot seat. And this is the same Stefanik that went to the defense of George Santos, trying to stop him from being expelled from the Congress. So what about the fact that the already the head of Penn has had to step down and the head of Harvard is very much in the hot seat now. It's not entirely sure whether the board at Harvard will fire her. And in your article one at dawn, you mentioned that in Arizona, two professors at the College of Education at the University of Arizona were suspended because some student uh, who was a obviously a supporter of Israel or belonged to a pro-Israel organization, posted edited versions of what they had said to make it seem like they were they were equating Hamas with the Black Panthers or other resistance groups. Have they been reinstated, those two professors? They have been reinstated. However, to my knowledge, they haven't been allowed to take back up the course from which they were removed. Uh, or the courses, uh, and uh, so uh, I suppose uh, they, they haven't been completely uh, exonerated or rehabilitated. And uh, the whole the whole episode is shameful. Um, first of all, uh, uh, saying that Hamas is a resistance movement uh, is is perfectly correct. Uh, um, it's not contradictory to say that, and to also admit that it has uh, committed acts of terrorism. Terrorism is a tactic. Uh, and many resistance movements have used the tactic. The implicit charge being made is that uh, using these terms, uh, comparing it to a resistance movement, is a form of, of condoning it. Uh, and, and teachers are not in the business of condoning or not condoning. They're trying to explain. Uh, and uh, basically, again, uh, the, the Zionist hard right does not want Palestinians explained. It wants them condemned, wants them silenced. And uh, and so they went after these poor education teachers uh, who were teaching, I think, young students. And um, we're simply trying to find analogies uh, for, um, uh, for American students to understand what might be going on. Uh, and they maintain, as you say, that the video clips that were released were edited so as to uh, distort uh, the, uh, uh, the class session. Uh, so um, university administrators have to be very careful about getting involved in all of this stuff because most of them, frankly, are, are ignorant about uh, the history of the Middle East. I, I, I'll bet you most of these people who are making these decisions, including the regents who went after president at, at Penn or, or uh, at, at Harvard, I have not read a book about the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, they're, they're simply emoting, you know, based on uh, what they've read in the newspapers or, or, or they're, they're worried about the politics of it. And this points to another problem, which is the, the, our universities have uh, been defunded 
by by the states. State universities have been, uh, and uh, as a result, um, they've had to seek endowments, and the extremely wealthy donors have gained disproportionate amounts of power. Some of them uh, have become regents or trustees of the university and use their position uh, to bully uh, uh, the president. And of course, the president serves at the pleasure of the of the regents. So, um, the you know the university as as an institution had been envisaged uh, in the United States as a as as a an institution of the republic, as a democratic institution, uh, and as as a, a safe space for freedom of analysis and speech. And uh, our, our creeping plutocracy uh, is part of the problem here. And the very wealthy people with uh, ignorant and uninformed or extremist views are now in a position to interfere with uh, the freedom of speech on campus. Right, and a right-wing hedge fund billionaire threatened to pull $100 million from Penn. And I'm sure that played a role in having the president of Penn step down, right? Well, and if that is true, it's shameful. Uh, and, uh, you know, is it, is kind of the death knell of uh, liberal arts education in the United States. So tell us about, you're, you're at the University of Michigan, and obviously Michigan is a key swing state, and Biden's in trouble because I think it's the largest American population is in Michigan, in the country, and they're obviously very upset about what's happening in Gaza and may not vote for Biden in 2024. But what's happening on campus with this group, Students for Justice in Palestine, which many demagogues like Ron DeSantis are ordering universities to de-recognize Students for Justice in Palestine? Right. Well, as you say, in Michigan uh, has a very large Arab American and Muslim American population, uh, and they have, in some Michigan elections, uh, they're thought to have played the role of a swing vote. Uh, they voted heavily for Biden uh, in the last election, and many of them are now saying that given his uh, essentially collaboration with what they view as a genocide in Gaza, uh, that they simply can't their way clear to, to voting for him again. Uh, and um, I, I, I don't know, you know, if, if Biden is going to carry Michigan, he has to, um, he has to replace them uh, with, with other constituencies. Somebody has to come be enthusiastic for him uh, uh, besides them. And uh, uh, Michigan is a purple state, you know, it can go Republican or it can go uh, Democrat, but uh, I think it it does pose a problem for Biden that he's taken the stance not only for Arab and Muslim Americans, who are after all only about four million in the United States, even though they have congregated in in swing states, uh, but also you know the, the youth, uh, virtually anybody under forty, uh, is mystified and appalled at Biden's stance on uh, allowing the Israelis to destroy Gaza. Uh, and clearly they've gone way beyond simply tracking down Hamas uh, members. Uh, they, they've uh, destroyed the infrastructure of the place and damaged uh, half of the um, domiciles, uh, the places where people live, uh, have either been destroyed or damaged. Uh, so this is a wholesale destruction, and the young people can't understand it. Uh, they don't understand what Biden's doing, and, and they're upset and they're unhappy. With regard to campus politics, uh, the, the University of Michigan has been relatively uh, uh, quiet uh, compared to some of the other instances that you gave. Uh, there have been demonstrations uh, by pro-Palestinian students, and there have been demonstrations by pro-Israel students. Uh, none of them, I think, has gotten out of hand. Uh, there was one um, incident where pro-Palestinian students went into the uh, the administrative building uh, where the president meets with the regents and so forth and, and took it over uh, at a time of day, I think, when when nobody was really there. They were, about 40 of them were arrested and, 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 and charged. Uh, and um, uh, initially, uh, the, there was thought of, 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 of throwing them off campus, but that the, the university rescinded that. Um, for the most part, however, uh, there hasn't been talk here of banning uh, the 
the Palestinian Students Organization. Uh, the reason that DeSantis gave for trying to ban it in, in Florida was that they had, again, characterized Hamas as a resistance movement. They'd also characterized themselves as part of the resistance. It doesn't mean that they are Hamas. And uh, I think, actually, uh, Hamas has very little support in the Palestinian-American community. Uh, most people are fairly secular-minded, and uh, the Muslims amongst them who are uh, Moscow's uh, disapprove of, of uh, mass killings of civilians. Uh, but I think the Palestinian community does feel that the situation for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank under Israeli military occupation uh, is, is unsupportable, is unsustainable. Uh, the Palestinians are stateless and, and that they, they do have a right to speak out for their, uh, for their freedoms, uh, which DeSantis tried to quash. But, it, uh, you know, of course, his order to disband the, uh, the, the students for justice in Palestine was unconstitutional. It would go to court and be struck down. But then uh, SJP uh, floated the idea of suing DeSantis and university administrators who participated in this uh, plot uh, personally. Uh, and all of a sudden they backed off uh, because there really, really was the prospect of, uh, of civil damages over interference in First Amendment uh, uh, liberties. So just in closing, the, the Congress passed a resolution put forth by a, a Republican congressman, and it, I think it equated... Um, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, and even some of the, <laughs> the anti-Semites on the right wing there, like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, voted for it. And of course, 216 Republicans voted yes, and 13 Democrats voted no. What kind of a signal does that send? Well, you know, Congress uh, has, has done things like vote to in, invade Iraq and, uh, uh, with not a shred of legality, and so there's a long, a long history of, of supporting shameful policies. Uh, they, they voted against uh, uh, civil rights for African Americans until 1964. Uh, so um, this uh, latest outrage is, is an attempt to again uh, interfere with the First Amendment rights of Americans. It's, it's, it's an attempt to destroy the First Amendment and to make it illegal or, or, or socially embarrassing for anyone to, to criticize Israeli policy. Uh, I don't think it will work. I think that the courts would, would throw it out, uh, although the same people who voted for this are attempting to pack the courts with ideologues uh, who, who don't care about the Constitution. Uh, but uh, I, I do think that the, uh, the Israel lobbies, uh, and, and these include many non-Jews, and, and a lot of Jews don't approve of, of this sort of thing, uh, to be clear, but the Israel lobbies are attempting to chip away at the First Amendment of the, uh, of the U.S. Constitution and to, uh, and to start creating grounds under, under which uh, those who are critical of Israeli policy uh, can have things done to them. Uh, and uh, I think this is, we're at, a, we're at a, an inflection point and the struggle uh, that 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 our our, our basic uh, freedoms as U.S. citizens, uh, which include criticizing the governments of uh, anybody we like, whether Argentina or France or, or, or Israel or, or Russia, uh, are, are being put in, in in danger on on these specious grounds that uh, criticizing the government of Israel is is, is equal to being a, a racialist bigot. Uh, and uh, I think everybody should speak out against this, and, and it's it's a sign of how corrupt Congress is that, that it even passed such a resolution. Juan Cole, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at wankohl.com and the author of The Ayatollahs in Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and most recently, Muhammad Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he has an article at Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn, The Other Israel-Gaza Conflict on Campus. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking at how Kate Cox, the 20-week pregnant woman in Texas, escaped 
the death sentence imposed by Texas Attorney General and the Texas Supreme Court by leaving the state for an abortion today. But I know sometimes I Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Francis Kissling, the president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy, who is a visiting professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, where she teaches reproductive health and ethics and serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics. She was the president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, stepping down when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. Welcome to Background Briefing, Francis Kissling. Thank you very much. It's nice to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Francis. And Katie Cox, uh, the young woman in uh, Texas who uh, was over 20 weeks pregnant with an unviable fetus that would uh, die shortly after it was born and would risk this woman's life and future fertility if it had come to term. She's now left the state, and uh, we don't know where she's gone. But it's an appalling situation, no matter how you see this, because the Texas Attorney General has substituted the, his bias or his you know, fanaticism, depending on how you see his anti-abortion stance, for the medical judgment of Katie Cox's doctors. So she had no choice because Paxton had taken this to the Texas Supreme Court and they'd put a stay on a lower judge's ruling to allow her to have an abortion, meaning that they were essentially running out the clock and every day that went by, uh, it put this woman's life in more and more danger. So what do you make of what just happened today? Well, I had been worried. I mean, since I knew, since the, since the case first became public, I was I was wondering about this problem of the clock running out. And I'm also aware of the fact that she could, even under the Texas law, leave the state and have an abortion elsewhere, and might be forced to do that by this um, by this stay that the Supreme Court has put into place. I'm very relieved um, that she has decided to go. Um, I think it was important that she brought the case um, because, because it, you know, she had a legitimate reason, even under the draconian law in Texas, to be able to get an abortion at home, where her family is, where she is comfortable, um, et cetera. And uh, it was important that that, um, that that be tried, or at least we tr- that the people in Texas try to make that clearer. Um, and the one worry that I have at this point in time is that as I read through the Texas law, um, she cannot be prosecuted for leaving the state and getting an abortion. But anyone who helped her to do that could be prosecuted. So I think that the next step in this process is, um, A, hopefully she will, I'm, I'm sure she has gone somewhere where she will have a very safe and um, compassionate procedure. Um, and I am sure that her lawyers and others have um, been careful to protect themselves from being sued when this is over or from being prosecuted when this is over. But, you know, given Paxton, I think there's a possibility that he will try to, you know, figure out who helped her. And if those people are in the state of Texas, um, we're going to see this continue because the man clearly has um, a vendetta. Well, does that mean then, Francis, that Paxton could go after Dr. Carson, uh, Katie Cox's doctor, and Katie Cox's husband? Because he could if argue he can, that they helped. They helped. If, if they if they helped in any way, and there is no, and and I'm sure everyone was very careful. She has very um, good legal counsel from uh, the Center for Con- for Reproductive Rights, the Health Center for Re- Law Center for Reproductive Rights. I am sure that there are ways in which, and I assume she will argue, that nobody helped her. Um, She looked in the phone book. She looked online. She found a doctor who does this. It's not hard to do that. 
Um, she contacted the doctor, and she made her own appointment. Under those circumstances, it seems to me, as I read the law, and I am not a lawyer, no one will be liable. But if Paxton, you know, keeps on this um, route, what he will try to do is find out if her doctor helped her find the place to go, um, who paid for it, um, all of those kinds of questions. I mean, we are in a draconian era. Um, Texas is in a draconian state um, around around trying to prevent um, any abortion from happening anywhere in the country. Well, under Texas law, a doctor who performs an illegal abortion uh, can face a prison term of up to 99 years and fines of at least $100,000. Right. Now, the lower court judge uh, in Travis County District Court did uh, allow uh, Ms. Cox to have an abortion under Texas law. Right. But now the Attorney General has decided that she doesn't qualify under Texas law, even though mm-hmm. the judge decided she did. And now, of course, the, you've got to stay with the Supreme Court, which is ultra-conservative, uh, right. along with Paxton, who, needless to say, was recently impeached by the Republican legislature in uh, Texas for outrageous behavior, all of which was aired for the whole public, tacky, disgusting, yes. you know, having a political donor pay off his mistress and find her an oh. apartment and all this kind of sleazy stuff. And he's also, since he's been in office, he's been under a um, cloud of, of an ongoing investigation into uh, securities fraud. So mm-hmm. it's well, just amazing that this yes, that this is. kind of person could essentially put a death sentence on this woman who's got a horrible situation. I mean, Exactly, exactly. She, I mean, and, you know, frankly, the person who has broken the law is Paxton. Um, under, under Texas law, um, a, 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 a person, a woman who is pregnant um, and whose pregnancy is a serious threat to her life or her health, in the opinion of her doctor, is entitled to have an abortion. There is nothing in the Texas law that requires more than her doctor to assert, based upon medical evidence, that this is a medically necessary, serious health threat to the woman. And so he, has, he is the one who has broken the law, um, and she and her doctor are the ones who have followed the law. And in reality, the, the, you know, if, if anybody wants, if anybody should be arrested, it's Paxton. Well, all we know, we don't know where, of course, she went to have an abortion. That obviously, for, out of necessity, is a, is a secret. Right. But the president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, who who have been handling her legal case, said on Monday that this past week of legal limbo has been hellish for Kate. Her health is on the line. She's been in and out of emergency rooms and she couldn't wait any longer. She desperately wanted to be able to get care where she lives and recover Mm -hmm. at home surrounded by family. While Kate has the ability to leave the state, most people do not. And a situation like this could be a death sentence. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that, uh, Nancy Northrup, the director, is exactly correct in her analysis of the situation. And the stay was indeed by the Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court itself um, endangered her health. Um, She is she has a very she has a very good chance of significant health complications from this procedure. And every day that she has to wait and the pregnancy continues and her stress level rises, which of course it is, um, she, she, she becomes more at risk. And so she really, had, she really had, she had no choice but to do this in order to protect her health. And, and you know, they, this was an attempt, a very serious and honest attempt to, to test the extent of the Texas law she was a brave and good person in order to allow herself to be 
the test case rather than just quietly leave the state and get an abortion. Um, and um, and you know, but but the clock was ticking, and she the the longer she waited to have this abortion, the more dangerous to her health it was. She had she had to go. Well, but this is a woman who's twenty weeks pregnant, and right. this is an urgent situation, and it's been delayed right. already because she's had to go to court and finally get a ruling from a judge that she should she should be allowed to have an abortion, and now Paxton steps in and delays it even further. And yes. you know and, she's been yeah. diagnosed with a the baby, the unborn baby was diagnosed with a fatal genetic condition which usually comes with complicated pregnancies and the very likelihood of a ruptured uterus. Yes, yes. And, well, you know, let us remember that the, um, the uh, I think, eight of, I think the, Supreme, the Texas Supreme Court has nine members, eight of whom are Republicans. Hmm. So, I thought you they're know, all Republicans, actually. But at any rate, and they're all men, uh, right, are they? I'm not sure if they're all they're all men. My my guess would be that they are, but that could be a prejudice on my part, a prejudicial assumption on my part. But they're definitely Republicans, and probably you know I didn't look far enough, but probably most of them were appointed, uh, you know, were appointed either they're fed or they no they're state justices, but most of them were appointed by by a Republican legislature. So Which we is, would deal, yeah. you know, yeah. we 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 look, we are bearing the sins of Donald Trump in terms of his control of the courts. I mean, he, he, has, he is the person who has done the most damage nationally and statewide to abortion, to the access of abortion. And, well. and you know, the situation of the woman is indeed dire, um, and now she, in addition to whatever physical um, uh, risks she faces, and she does face risks continuing the pregnancy. Whatever physical res- risks she faces by this, um, you know, stay business um, is causing her greater uh, emotional, psychological pressure, which is also not good for her. Which 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 also influences um, her 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 physical her physical well being. I mean, it is. It is a totally cruel situation, and it, you know, in a sense, what it does is it proves what what the pro-choice movement has said forever, which is there really is no sympathy, no compassion, no feeling on the parts of those who are radically opposed to abortion um, to the situation faced by women, because you know, like we have the case, we have the other case on the West Coast of the young woman. 13 years old, if I remember correctly, young girl, raped by a member of the family who could not get an abortion in her home state. She was now six weeks, point two days or something like that. And she, you know, she was able to go to another state. But the attorney general and, and you know, the, the sympathy of the public is, is with this. But these cases come, are coming up constantly. And to some extent, one of the aspects of this is the way in which many of these state laws are formulated. The penalty to the doctor for performing an, abo- an abortion that is not part of the limited exceptions that exist is very high. So, you know, what we know is going on is a woman goes into the hospital who is having an, who is in the, in the midst of an ectopic pregnancy that is threatening her life. And the first thing that the doctors in the hospital do is call the lawyer for the hospital and mm-hmm. ask the lawyers, can I do this? And the lawyers are, you know, predisposed in almost all cases to avoid any possible risk. And so the doctors are told, no, you can't do it. Uh, this, is, this is what we are facing. And, you know, the Texas law permits abortion for, for both the life of the woman and serious physical health challenges. That is written in the law. Well, this... It would be different. To some extent, you might say it would be different if the only exception was the life of the woman. You might say, well, her life is not immediately threatened, but her health is seriously threatened, and that's what her doctors say. 
Well, apparently this is a condition of the, ch- the unborn baby is called trisomy 18. Yes. And it's a f- fatal genetic condition where yes. the fetus is not, and the child is not expected to live more than a few days outside of the womb. Uh, right. And that she can't have a C-section uh, because apparently uh. she's had C-sections before. And that continuing the pregnancy, according to the doctors, puts her at a right. high risk of severe complications, threatening her life and her future fertility, including uterine rupture and hysterectomy. Exactly. No, I mean, there is no question that there is no question that, you know, aside from the fact that under any circumstances, um, an abortion of this nature would, would you know, even, even in 1969, an abortion of this nature would have been permitted. It would have been legal. And, um, and, and, you know, we're, at this point, we're dealing with, circum- with decisions that are made that are worse than, than the pre-row um, um, requirements for an abortion. Well, Paxton, of course, apart from being a crook and a sleaze and a hypocrite, he's the guy that brought the suit about the so-called Stop the Steal suit to basically overturn the election results uh, in Trump's favor. And he was joined by none other than the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who then tried to rally his Republican members. Uh, He got about 140 of them, as a matter of fact, to vote against Biden's certification. So there you have another good Christian. He's close, works closely with Paxton, all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, give me a break here. Yes, exactly, exactly. I mean, it is, it, 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 it you know, it, it is an appalling case, um, and it, it bears every example that one can talk about um, on the on this issue about um, the type of person who often is the person who is anti-abortion. Not every person who is anti-abortion is a crook or hates women, but you have an overwhelming predominance. Of of men um, and some women who who um, who are of no moral character whatsoever, and they're in charge of the country. <laughs> this is what we're dealing with. Well, at the moment, you've got to pin this on the Supreme Court, and by extension, Trump, right, for putting these these yes, zealot, zealots on the court. Yep. That's exactly what I think. I think that you know, we as I said, we are bearing. Now, the fruit, you know, the rotten fruit of, of Donald Trump's presidency. And, and you know, I, I worry a little bit that he might get reelected. Well, bad enough without bringing that up, <laughs> Francis. Yes. <laughs> but I think, unfortunately, yeah. you have hit on a, a really clear and present danger. And, and I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, my, my pleasure to do it. And, um, and, and, and you know, but, but first of all, I'm very appreciative of the fact that these individual cases, which add up to a significant, add up to, case, to, the, to the worst cases that women face where they are denied abortions, are at least getting a very significant amount of public coverage. And I'm one of those pro-choice people who actually has a lot of good relationships with people who are pro-life, and I, who have always seen themselves as pro-life. And I can tell you that when I talk to those people, they say what I said earlier in this conversation. They say, I have always been pro-life, but what is going on now is not pro-life. Well, Francis, again, I thank you, and I've been speaking with Francis Kissling, who is the president of the Center for Health, Ethics, and Social Policy, who is a visiting professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, where she teaches reproductive health and ethics and serves on the board of the Journal of Feminist Ethics. And she was the president of Catholics for Choice for 25 years, stepping down when she became a Radcliffe Fellow at Harvard. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. 
And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Appear.